Okay, I'm not exactly sure what reason you came up with, but the reason that I want to start off by talking about is um, cultural presuppositions. So all of us have these things that, that when we come to the Bible to read, we, we come with it with all these ideas about the way life should be and about the way people should be and the way they should treat each other and what thing, you know, philosophies about life, and, and that is influenced by whether you grew up in a big city or a small town or a, um, a big family or single, you know, you're, you're the only child, or um, it can be influenced by, you know, economics, it can be influenced by race, it can be influenced by a lot of different things. The fact that we have, that we're coming at a disadvantage when we read Scripture because it's, it's written in English and it didn't come to us originally in English, we're at, we are already at a disadvantage, right? So, so someone is interpreting the, the Bible for us, and we're reading their, their translation of, of these words. And so we're, we're kind of at a disadvantage already. And, and so all of us have these cultural presuppositions, and it's really easy to, when we read the Bible, especially our text tonight, to have these, like, um, American, Western like lenses to which we see things through. And, and you might read, we might read through the story tonight, and you might think of ways in which this story might be offensive to you, and you may miss the point completely. And so <clears throat> one of the ways that, we, that helps us not do this is what we call this interpretive process, um, in which we have three steps. The first one is, what did it mean to them? Okay, and we're, we're looking for the author's intended meaning. What, did it mean, what does it mean to the original audience? What did the, the original author, what were they trying to convey? Okay, what did it mean to them? And then once we figure that out, then we can go up to this next part and we can figure out what does it mean to everyone? At all times, what does it mean? What, what, what does this have to say? What's, what's a principle that could be applied to everyone at all times? And then once we kind of figure that out, and then we can come back down here. And then we can figure out what it means to us. And so tonight, what I want to do is, I'm going to spend most of my time in this box. And so we're going to be in Genesis 38. You can turn there, Genesis 38. And in Genesis 38 is, is a really interesting story. We, we, we take a pause on Judah's, uh, Joseph's life. So we left off Joseph. He is, um, you know, he was... Uh, his his father's kind of quote-unquote favorite and he was bragging to his brothers and his brothers got jealous and tired of it and they eventually sold him into slavery and then he ends up in Potiphar's house and works his way up um, as a man of integrity and is entrusted and then all of a sudden Potiphar's wife lies about him and Potiphar can't help now but he's got to do something about it and throw him in jail and so he does and so we we leave the story of Joseph with him in jail but then, it's like the author decides to say, oh, and by the way, let me, tell you about, let me tell you about the adventures of Judah. And so we get to kind of step back. It's not necessarily in, in perfect alignment of time. We don't exactly know when this story takes place because it takes place over decades. Um, but the three questions that I'm going to try to answer are, um, what is the offense? Okay, what's the offense here? that's taking place. Um, what is shocking about this story? Where's the shock value? And then the last one, what is the point? 
that's hopefully what we can um, get to tonight. What is the, what's the point? So, I'm going to be in, like I said, Genesis 38. Let me start by reading. I'll just read the first few verses. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to, the, to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Shezib when, when, he, when she bore him. So, um, you might have missed this, this literary cue, I think, that the moment that uh, the author starts talking about Judah. Um, he says, he went down from his brothers and he turned aside. It's kind of an interesting phrase, he turned aside. Wait, wait, wait what does he mean, turn aside from what? Uh, it, whenever you read through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there's this language of, do not turn to the right or turn to the left. But it's kind of like, keep heading towards the Lord. Do not turn aside to the left or turn aside to the right. And so this, this language of turning, turning aside, turning from, um, is usually connected to this idea of kind of turning from God. And so I think, I think the author is kind of cluing us in that, all right, so what's about to take place next is, is not going to be good. Like there's, there's, so right off the bat, I think, what the offense that's happening here is, is Judah is turning away from the Lord. And then, and then we go just not even a verse later, and all of a sudden now he sees a Canaanite woman, and now he marries a Canaanite woman, which we know that that was not, um, prohibited. That was not something that God wanted. He, he wanted very clearly to be with his own. And so to, to turn aside and to find a Canaanite woman and to marry her and to start having children with her um, is a sign of something. Now there's some backstory here that uh, all the, the, the different commentaries I read talked about this idea. In fact, we get a little hint of this later on at the end of Genesis when Jacob is blessing all of his sons, and the first three sons of Jacob receive kind of like a curse, um, because we know of three different of each of them having some issues, like um, doing things that that were detestable, and you know the, the one of the last stories we heard about was Levi and um, these other ones. The other names slip in my mind. The, the second two. They, they go into this town and they kill all these men, right? And, and, and Jacob now is like, what have you done? You know, our name is going to be a stench among the people and they have to kind of leave. And so, so there's all these different things. Reuben slept with, his, um, w- with Abraham's wife, one of his wives, right? And so, so the, each of the three sons. So Judah now is, Judah is the one. Judah is the first son that is most likely in line for the blessing, of this, and and yet this is what's taking place. So that those are some clues. That I think that's what's going on. Verse six, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, 
Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So we see as, as Judah turns aside and, and, and marries a Canaanite woman, we see the um, increasing sin in his children. Right? And so... This would have been an interesting thing. Consequently, um, these two guys who die, it says, the Lord put him to death. It's, they're the first individuals that God kind of goes after and takes out in the Bible. Um, and and I, don't know, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read that, okay, living today, living where I live, when I read that, I go, okay, well, what did they do? I need a little. I need a little. I need some evidence, God. I need some. Um, I need to know a little more if I can. If I can trust whether or not you did the right thing here. And I, I don't know if you have that question. I have that question that comes to mind. And I. I, I don't think the original audience would have had that question. The the original audience would have understood like, when people die like this. Sometimes there's a, there's a there's a clear obvious explanation. And if there's wickedness in someone's life and then they die, maybe unexpected or, or whatever, then it's clear that this is what's happening. And so, um, again, letting go of, of how I read this and okay, thinking about this, if this happened today, the kinds of answers that we would need, I don't think that's happening there. Now, it was custom... Um, it's called a Leverite marriage, a Leverite vow, this, this custom that if, if a brother dies and doesn't leave children with his wife, then the, the next brother in line is to, is to do that. It, it's a way of providing. So, you know, women were valued by bringing sons and children into the community, right? And plus it also, for her, it was someone to, to, to grow up and to um, provide for her. And, and so this was, a, this was an act of service that a brother would do to help provide children and heritage and you know all this provision protection with children, and Onan decides to selfishly not help this woman out, and so the Lord takes him out as well. And then um, Judah gets afraid, and he's already on this path of turning from the Lord, and he decides that, well, gosh, I'm either like this woman's crazy. In which there is actually some cultural background to when things like this would happen, they would start to go, well, I think she might be the problem. Like, maybe she's the problem. And so, I don't know what's, we don't know what's going through Judah's mind, but we know that he seems to have no indication to take care of this, this woman, which is his obligation. In fact, it was part of, part of the, the duty of his as well, that if the sons can't, then he will provide children, and he doesn't. And he says, go, go back and live with your father until my son is older. And it, it seems like he has no indication 
no desire to, to really take care of her. So, um, he, he doesn't. Um, and, and what's interesting is, um, like th- this, what's happened, to, what's happened to Joseph just in the chapter before, and, and now um, Judah is kind of setting up a, a, a scenario where he might get to experience um, something that he caused in his brother's life. And so, verse 12, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was, was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, and he and his friend Hirah the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she, she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned uh, to her on the, road, on the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge, uh, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose, and she went away. Taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So, we don't know exactly how long all this takes. Um, um, we're talking about you know, Judah going and marrying a woman and having three sons, and those sons growing up, and those sons, that son taking a wife, and then all this happening, and then her being with her father for some time, and then... And then um, this takes place. And so obviously years and decades are going on and happening. But notice the first time that, that Judah turns aside, it's with this, this Adolamite named Hurrah. And here he is again, back with the same guy. It seems like there might be a connection to um, like when bad, he's bad company. The bad things happen when he's around this guy. Um, so, but why would she dress up like a prostitute? Now, um, we, I think we hear that, and maybe we think, uh, you know, who knows? She's, she's getting back at her, at her father-in-law. She's, who knows? She's got some evil plan. Um, actually, there was, there was some cultural significance to around certain times of season, especially of harvest times, and sheep shearers' time would have been a, a time of harvest, especially with, with their, their, their animals, and so... Um, there was this cult practice, this form of idol worship that if you sleep with a cult prostitute, that it could increase fertility, right? That increase the chances of fertility. So is this just a Judah, you know, loses his wife and now he's just going to go have sex with a prostitute? Is this Judah trusting in like the gods of fertility to maybe provide for him more? We don't exactly know, but we know, we know that he is um, heading in a direction that, that isn't good. Also, we know if, if, she, if she assumes that she dresses up like a prostitute, he's going to pick her, is a probably a decent indication that she knew this was the kind of practice that he had. 
Okay. So again, all this stuff is speaking to the kind of character that Judah has displayed. We know what he was like with, with Joseph, his brother. and He was one of the first ones to say, throw him in the pit, get rid of him, kill him, whatever. Um, and now, and this is the character that we see happening in this man. And so, I don't know about you. I don't know if this offends you that she dresses up like a prostitute and does this. I don't know if it offends you that, that uh, Judah would take this prostitute. Um, um, but however it offends you, again, the offense is in with God. That, that seems to be what the author is trying to clue us in on. That um, there's no righteousness in what Judah is doing. Um, that he's, he's lost sight of who, who God is and, and the, the God that his, his fathers have been following. And so I think that is, that is the bigger picture. That's the bigger um, offense that's happening here. But what about the shock? Is it shocking that she would dress up and, and, and do this? Is it shocking that he would pick her? We'll see. Verse 20. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the Adolamite to take back to, the, to pledge back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute um, who was at Enam, Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah said, Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Basically saying, I did my part, and she's not here. And she didn't get it, so let her keep it. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. In other words, he did not have sex with her again. So Judah goes back to pay her um, what he said he would. She's not there. He says, fine, keep it, I did my part, and then life goes on, and all of a sudden, Tamar's pregnant, which would have been a huge, huge thing in their, in their culture. And so he finds out she's pregnant, he wants to put her to death. Um, again, I don't know how you read that, I read that and go, what a double standard, like, oh, he can do whatever he wants, but the moment she, he gets all fired up, and again, that's not the point of this, although that's true. Um, it's not that he's just a mean guy, although that might be true. Um, the point is, he's lost sight of righteousness and altogether, and she does the righteous thing. Um, in fact, that's the shocking part of this story. What the shocking part of this story is that this, this Canaanite woman um, upholds, uh, upholds this righteousness for Judah, and basically in some ways, kind of tricks him into doing the right thing, the thing he should have done a long time ago. She leads him in, in, this, in this kind of, unbeknownst to him, 
she helps him do the right thing by providing a son. Now, it goes, goes about it all kinds of crazy ways, but the fact that Tamar dressing up like a prostitute is, Judah says, she is more righteous than I. Just an interesting idea that, that um, how, how this all plays out. So let me, let me keep reading and then we'll, we'll finish up. When the time came for, for her labor, um, when the time of labor, sorry, when the time of her labor came, uh, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name is called Perez. And afterwards his brother came out with the scarlet thread in hand, and his name was called Zerah. So what is that all about? Well, it was a really big deal to, to know who was the firstborn son. And so what, what they're describing is um, Zerah is, was the firstborn son. He sticks his arm out, so she ties a, a thread around his arm. He's the firstborn son, but, but he's not the first one to come out. So Perez is this other one that kind of comes out first, even though he's the second-born son. Why is that important? Well, that will be important um, to help us understand why, what the point of this whole story is. In fact, that little piece of information is, is going to connect us to like the larger story of this whole Bible. And Drew's going to kind of help us understand that here in just a second. So let's take a break, and then he'll come up. All right. Uh, so the story that you just heard is one of the most unique in scriptures, and, and that is in a Bible that is full of unique stories. Uh, Tamar and her character and her narrative is, is pretty different. This idea of a girl who, uh, who dresses as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into impregnating her is about as crazy as it gets. Um, but it is not the only uh, unique thing about Tamar. Uh, actually, Tamar has this, uh, this weird thing. She is part of one of the most exclusive clubs in the Bible, actually. Uh, there's just her and four other women throughout all of Scripture um, who can lay claim to this one thing. Uh, and it is, it is a big thing, but, but it is only these five all throughout, all throughout the Bible. So it is one of the more unique clubs in all of Scripture. These women that seem to be unrelated in so many other ways have this one thing in common. I want to go through those five names real quick and, and see if you can figure it out. The first is who we just heard of, Tamar. Uh, takes place in thir- Genesis 38. Um, and you just heard the story, so you don't need me to repeat it. But the second one is... Uh, a woman by the name of Rahab. Uh, her story takes place in Joshua 2. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute uh, living in uh, the first major attack point 
for the land of Canaan when Israel comes up out of Egypt and is about to invade the promised land. Jericho is this major fortified city on on the first main inroad into the land of Canaan. And so if Israel is going to take it over, they're going to have to take Jericho first. But it's heavily fortified because it's right there on the edge. And it's this big issue. You, you, You know the story. And so Joshua sends out these two spies. And while they're in the land, word gets out that they're in that city. And so the king sends people to start looking for them. And Rahab, this prostitute, hides them in her home, uh, keeps them safe. And the reason why is because she's heard about these people and she's heard about this God that they serve and what he did in Egypt. And, and, and they're afraid of him. And she's, I'm, I'm hiding you, but uh, you got to make me this deal that when the time comes, when you come to take over Jericho, uh, that you will uh, spare me and my family. And so... Uh, and so they do. When, when they conquer Jericho, Rahab and her family are spared from all of that. Uh, the next name that pops up here is Ruth from Ruth. <laughs> uh, only, by the way, this is kind of uh, only Gentile, maybe the only Gentile period, definitely the only Gentile woman to have a name uh, a Bible, or uh, yeah, a book of the Bible. I guess Luke is there too. A book of the Bible named after her, which is kind of crazy. But uh, Ruth is a Moabite. So uh, also not, not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. And, and Israelites aren't supposed to marry Moabites or, or Gentiles of any kind, those around the edge. That's kind of a big thing that we, we stay in this together. And we don't intermarry with these people because people like the Moabites are polytheists. Um, pagans worshiping idols and sometimes actually um, offering like human sacrifices to those idols. Moab had a specific uh, god that they made human sacrifices to. This is the people group that, uh, that, that Ruth is from. And yet somehow uh, a, a, a man by the name of Kilion ends up marrying uh, Ruth. And, and he's an Israelite himself. Uh, he and his family moved to that area to uh, get away from, I believe, a famine. He marries Ruth there and then shortly after dies. And, and in this long, weird, kind of uh, crazy story, you should read the book of Ruth uh, sometime, this crazy story, she ends up back in Israel in a town called Bethlehem. And in a, because of a law similar to, but not exactly like the Leverite marrying laws, she ends up married to this man by the name of Boaz in Bethlehem. And, and so this is our third. The fourth is another name many of you probably know. Bathsheba. Her story takes place, starts at least, and the main gist of it is in 2 Samuel 11. Bathsheba is a uh, woman in the city of Jerusalem, and, and again, you probably know the story. King David is out on his palace, up kind of on the balcony area one day when he's supposed to be off at war, and he notices this woman bathing. Um, he can see her from there, and so he calls for her, and, and once her finds out that she's actually married to a man, a man who's actually pretty high-ranking in David's army, a guy by the name of Uriah the Hittite, uh, but David doesn't care. She's too beautiful, and so he calls her up to the palace, they end up sleeping together, and, and that decision right there cascades into this um, just array of disasters that come upon David and his family and his kingdom because of that one moment, uh, starting with an illegitimate, or an illegitimate pregnancy 
when Bathsheba becomes pregnant with David's child, and then a cover-up to try and keep that from getting out, how he has, and he has Uriah killed in order for that to not be known, and then he brings Bathsheba into his house and marries her, and, and then Nathan shows up and says, because of your sin against Uriah, um, because of your sin in this kingdom, um, there's basically God's hand is upon you. And the child that she gives birth to ends up dying. And, and then actually uh, Nathan also says that his, David's household will turn on him. And that ends up happening. His own children turn against each other, um, rape one another, kill one another. And then one of his children turns against him and tries to take the whole kingdom out of David's hand. And all of it comes down to this one moment here with Bathsheba. Now, we don't know exactly Bathsheba's part in all of this. Um, whether or not like she had all that much say in this. David is the king after all, but her name forever becomes associated with this moment and the disaster that it brought on David and his kingdom from there on out. Um, the last one is probably the most famous of all of these. Mary from Luke 1. You know Mary's story. Mary is a young peasant woman living in northern Palestine, specifically the region of Galilee. Um, she's engaged, not married, engaged to a man named Joseph, and then ends up getting pregnant by not Joseph. Um, and word like that travels fast, and, and that's pretty... Um, it's, it's pretty unheard of, and, and so it's, it becomes known pretty quick that this woman who's promised to be married to somebody else is pregnant with somebody else's child. She refuses to say who it was, and if you get her to budge on anything, she comes up with some crazy story about an angel and all of those things. And, and these five women all end up, even though they are separated by many years and many books and pages and all of those things, all have this, actually two things in common. Um, the first thing that they have in common is that they are all outsiders, uh, either socially or morally or culturally or religiously or economically or in some cases all of the above. Of these, of these uh, women, three of them are uh, not Israelites, are not part of God's people. Tamar is a Canaanite. Rahab is a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabite. So they're not part of the people of God. They're on the outside, uh, seemingly, of that plan and purpose. Uh, at least four, you could maybe say Ruth uh, a little bit in there as well because she's marrying into Israelites. But at least four of them are embroiled in some level of like sexual scandal. Uh, again, Mary, Mary herself is not in that case, but she's seen as that. Everyone assumes that she is. Um, two of them are outright prostitutes, um, or, uh, or at least um, in Tamar's case, like taking the role of a prostitute and engaging in that. And so all of them are messy, so to speak. All of them are the outsiders in, in several different ways. Um, but the second big thing that binds them together, and this is the big exclusive club, is that these five women, and only these five women, make it into the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Which is actually amazing, um, both sides of that statement. That these women are in the genealogy, because in Jewish genealogies you don't typically include women at all. No reason to include women. What matters is who's the father and who's that guy's father and who's that guy's father. Read Luke's genealogy. That's how it works. Uh, 
Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of, uh, and so on, all the way up. That's, that's how it works. Matthew includes out of nowhere women in there. And of the women he chooses, it's all five of these ones. Crazy when you think of the women like left off. Sarah, like the mother of all Israel, like Abraham's wife, doesn't get in the list. Rebecca, Leah, they don't make it in the list. No, he, he includes women and then chooses only to include these five women of all people. These messy, somewhat embroiled in scandal, uh, outsider women are the ones that make it into this list. And you see there, it'll say, and, and Scott said, these two women, that in the list, Judah is the father of Perez by Tamar. And he stops and makes sure to emphasize that. By Tamar. Why? Why is it um, that Matthew chooses to put this in here? Uh, again, I, I've said this several times before. I'll say it again. If the Bible is simply made up to try and get people to believe a certain story and try to get people to follow some sort of made-up religion. Whoever was doing that did a terrible job of it. Um, because these aren't the kinds of facts that you mention when like, you're trying to give your pedigree to someone and make yourself sound important, right? I come from a long line of prostitutes. <laughs> not, uh, not something you brag about. And, and if you're trying to put together a story about the glorious and royal and regal Messiah, the Son of God who comes to earth to rule over all the universe and to save all the universe, you don't make up stories about prostitute great-grandmothers. And, and even if it did happen, you don't have to include it. Why would you include it? And, and that becomes the issue, this, this question too, first of all, why, if God is sovereign over all of these things, he could have had the Messiah come through any combination of lineage. He could have brought it through any different set of ancestors. Why did God choose to do it through these five women? And then why, why was he so concerned that he inspired Matthew to make sure that they got included in the list? Why did he want them in there so bad? Those are huge questions. I think the answer is that Matthew puts it in there, that God puts it in there to highlight the kind of people that Jesus came for. That is, Jesus came for the kinds of people that he came from. He came for the same kind of people that he came from, broken people, messed up people, not okay people, outsiders. So Jesus came for one of the biggest problems that people tend to have with Christianity is this idea that we think we're better than everybody else. That, that we think we kind of have it together and, and that we have a, a morality and we have a life that is so much better and, and we, we can be so judgmental towards everyone else. I was just talking to um, a young man last week who told me that one of his problems with Christianity is this idea that um, honestly, that just because you go to church and you tithe and you try to live a good life, that like you get to go to heaven after you die and the rest of us go to hell. That's like a problem. That's something he, he doesn't quite get. But here's what I'll tell you. Anyone who has that kind of problem with Christianity either doesn't know any Christians or the Christians he knows don't know the gospel. The Christians he knows don't know the Bible, haven't read the genealogy of Jesus, 
Because it's not just these five women here. You can read in here and the people, the people that you might want to get excited about, Abraham. Well, we've read all about Abraham's flaws. Jacob, Judah is in the list. You go on down. David, he's, he's just as much, he's more a part of this issue with Bathsheba than, uh, than Bathsheba is in that sense. And so on and on it goes. It's a list full of failures. It's a list full of screw-ups. And so when we read that, we get a chance to see, and it's not just this little section leading up to Jesus' birth. It's actually Jesus' ministry that highlights this over and over again. Time and time again, Jesus is accused of being a friend of sinners and of tax collectors and of prostitutes. And when that happens, Jesus never tries to like dodge that. He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't, well, let me explain. You don't understand. He goes, yes, exactly. It's exactly what I am. Matthew 9, 12, when he's accused, when he's asked, why, why is it, Jesus, actually, they're asking the disciples, the Pharisees come to the disciples, why is it, if your rabbi is so great, if he's such a good man, if he's such a godly person, why does he spend all of his time hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes? Matthew says that Jesus overhears and turns to him in Matthew 9, 12 and says these famous words, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's why. Because it's the sick people who need a doctor. That's, that's, who, that's exactly who I'm here for. That's why I came. He's consistently hanging out with women of ill repute, with traitors, with lepers, with Samaritan women who've been divorced five times, with rough-around-the-edges fishermen. And sometimes to explain all this and make sense of it for people, he stops and he tells stories. One of my favorite little ones is this short one out of Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 10 through 14, Jesus says this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, and by the way, you, you need to know, you need to understand, they didn't dislike tax collectors because, you know, they're collecting taxes and nobody likes paying taxes. They didn't even really, I mean, sometimes it's true what you heard growing up in Sunday school, that the tax collectors were like cheating people and ripping them off and charging them more than they owed. That, that sometimes was true. No, but the main reason they hated tax collectors is because tax collectors were traitors, because they were betraying God's people, because they were helping Rome raise money so that Rome could continue to oppress their neighbors. That's why, because you're raising money so that our enemies can continue to oppress me. That's why they don't like these people. They're the worst of the worst. They're the scum of the earth, according to the Jewish people. And this is what Jesus says. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, this is one of the key ideas that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion and every other belief system on the planet. It's not that even broken and messy people can be a part of this thing. That's, that's not the key truth. The key truth that sets Christianity apart from others, because there are other religions that believe that, by the way. 
There are other religions that believe in like redemption and kind of helping people. The key truth that sets Christianity apart is that only broken and messy people can be a part of this thing. But that's like the supreme criteria. That's, that's one of the major things that need to be in place for this to happen. So here's the thing. If you happen to be one of those people that has just kind of throughout your life naturally had it together, uh, if you were like, you know, captain of the football team or the soccer team, if you were homecoming queen, if you were valedictorian like myself, so some of you chuckle because you know I graduated in a class of three. Uh, <laughs> If you were valedictorian, if you were, if you were um, always known as the nice guy, always known as the good girl, the one, that, the one that, like, you know, that guy that moms wanted their daughters to date, or that girl that, like, people just said, be like her. Why, why can't you be more like, she's so sweet, she's so kind. If you were always that person, here's the thing, that's awesome. Honestly, uh, dude, great that you were able to kind of put things together. Great that you're smart. Great that you're a really good person. But you need to know, to some degree, the Bible says that you're working at a disadvantage when it comes to the kingdom of God. Not because you're not broken and messy, but because you have the ability to hide that fact from yourself and from other people. And that is something that can work against you, something that can come and get you. A lot of people hate this idea that I don't have it all together. This idea that I need to actually confess that and, and, and the, the idea that I need to, to admit that to myself or to other people and many of us will spend our whole lives trying to outrun that feeling that something is lacking in them by chasing achievements or relationships or being really kind and ethical. But deep down, everybody knows when they stop long enough to think about it, everyone knows that something is not quite right with me. Something's not, I'm not the person that I want to be. I'm not the person that I ought to be. I'm not as kind as I want. I'm not as good as I want. I'm not as honest as I want. And the Gospels highlight this. The New Testament highlights this. In fact, that story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, immediately afterwards, Luke follows it up with this story about a bunch of people trying to bring babies. He literally says infants to Jesus. And the idea was that children were to be Sort of seen and not heard, really not seen or not heard back then. I mean, they're great. You want to have kids. You want to raise your... But don't, like, bother important people with kids. And so, of course, like, some of Jesus' followers kind of rebuke people. Don't bring your babies to Jesus. He doesn't have time for that. He's a... and, and then Jesus turns and rebukes them and says this, this kind of line out of Luke 9 that basically says, if anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. What he means by that is not a childlike faith. He means the ability to recognize that I bring nothing to the table, that I don't deserve this, that I can't pull myself in by my good deeds or my brains or my beauty or my niceness. I am completely dependent on the goodness and mercy of God himself. Anyone who is not able to see that in themselves cannot be a part of my kingdom, Jesus says. It's the only way in. As I said, most people will spend much of their lives trying to dodge that feeling or that truth in themselves, that there's something that's not right, that that image of God we talked about so long ago is broken in them, and they'll try everything they can to try to put all the pieces back together. But do you know what happens when a person finally stops and admits that? When a person is finally willing to say, I'm one of these, 
I'm screwed up, I'm messed up, and all those things. What happens when we say that? Is, is the whole point for God to say, ha, 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 I finally got you to admit it. You suck. No. You know what Jesus says when you say that? When you're finally able to say, I can't do this. I don't have it together. I, I need you, Jesus, to take this. I need you to take the flaws in my character and the guilt in my heart and the shame in my past. I need you to take that. I need you to give me what you have. I need, me to give you, or I need you to give me your goodness and, and your righteousness and your faithfulness because I don't have any of it myself. What happens when you say that is Jesus says, finally, and of course, of course, I'm going to give you that. That's, that's exactly why I came to do that. That's why I came to the earth. That's why I died. That's why I rose again, because you don't have it in you, and I was glad to give it to you. My righteousness, this is what some theologians call the great exchange from 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That he takes all my sin, all my messiness, all my brokenness, and I get all his righteousness. I get all his holiness. This is the amazing truth that sets following Jesus apart from everything else. If there's any of you in here who do not know him, if there's any of you in here who have always had that feeling about Christianity that it's only for like buttoned up people who have their crap together and that's kind of why you resent it a little bit. I hope you'll see the truth. I hope you'll know this. I hope that you'll take Jesus up on this offer to give you all of his righteousness because that's what he died for, to do that for you. And for the many of you who have already taken him up on that, I hope that you won't, um, hope you won't get stupid and start to think that after you've done that, that now it's all on me to pull myself together. That now that Jesus calls me to holiness, which he does, by the way. He doesn't go to tax collectors and prostitutes and then just say, continue living how you're living. That's, that's not what we see. He calls them sick for a reason, and he comes to heal them for a reason, but he recognizes the Pharisees are just as sick. And he calls them and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the preacher's kids and everybody else, he calls them to the same level of holiness. But the, the thing is, the very grace that saves you is actually the same grace that grows you, is the same grace that builds you up. And until you are able to see that, until you are able to humble yourself, until you are able to hear Jesus say, come to me, all you who are broken and weary and find rest for your souls, until you are able to lean into his goodness, recognizing that you do not have the ability in and of yourself to make you into the kind of person that you want to be. You're never going to get uh, not only justification, the process of being saved, you're never going to get sanctification, which is the process of being made like Jesus. The Bible from front to back is a story about a God who redeems those who cannot redeem themselves. Not just saving them, but making them more and more like Jesus. And that's, that's why I love this club. That's why I love uh, this group, this sisterhood here that reminds me um, that Jesus came from the very kind of people he came for. And that would be prostitutes, and that would be uh, outsiders, and that would be tax collectors, and that would be you, and that would be me. I want to have the band come up and uh, get ready to lead us in a time of worship together.
we like to, in this moment, usually kind of give you just a, a, a thing to either pray about or reflect on. And, and here's, here's what I want you to kind of think about during these next couple moments. Maybe hash this out with God. Um, where is it that I am leaning into my own righteousness? Where is it that I am working so hard to prove to the world or to myself or to God that I'm worthy and to make myself good enough, um, to be my own kind of righteousness, to make my, uh, keep my own stuff together? Or, or if there is anyone in here who has never actually made that decision to give themselves over to Jesus, like to, to ask this question, what, what keeps me from doing that? What keeps me from that great exchange? And to confess that to God, and, and then to thank Him for His grace and ask Him to pour more and more of that grace into your life as you humble yourself before Him to be changed and transformed by Him.